Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. James Alfred Porter, 1892-1960, was an American-born anthropologist and ethnographer living in Mexico. He is best known for his book, which we will be reading from today, A Prince of Anahuaca, a story traditional story editing the Aztec Empire. Porter spent most of his career in the field, traveling to the remote and mostly uncharted regions of Mexico and Central America to collect, study and publish works on Mexican and Central American indigenous cultures, as well as their region's ancient and modern history, language and traditions. Among his other works are articles and books on the indigenous peoples and cultures of Veracruz, Campeche, Chiapas, and Oaxaca, as well as the Totonac. He was widely respected and highly regarded by his noted contemporaries, including Ruth Benedict, John Kenneth Turner, Ricardo Pozas, and Matthew Sterling. If you enjoy our program, Please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. The Great Valley of Anahuac, the Valley of Mexico, if not now, was once a grand and beautiful spot, such as is rarely found upon the face of our terraqueous globe. When nearest its natural state, in the time when its inhabitants directed their efforts to beautifying and not to marring it, it might well have been denominated an Eden. We refer to that period in its transition which covered a century or two prior to the fall of Montezuma. The majority of the people of Anahuac were not, strictly speaking, Aztecs, but became so by centralization, the Montezumas and their immediate predecessors becoming, by the trend of events, masters of the situation. The great Aztec empire had scarcely a half century of existence and was preceded by a condition of things in which tribal distinction prevailed, the Aztec being only one of many tribes and not greatly superior, if superior at all, to some of its neighbors. In fact, the Aztecs, prior to the overthrow of the Tepanec empire, unquestionably occupied a position of inferiority. From this time on, However, their power and influence may be said to have rapidly increased until their supremacy was assured in the formation of an empire with their ruling prince at its head. That the reader, who is not informed with respect to the Anahuacans and the conditions which prevailed among them, may be better prepared for an intelligent perusal of our story, the following brief account of them is presented. They were a remarkable people, in many respects, and when the lack of opportunities which hindered and the peculiar conditions which influenced them are taken into account were wonderfully intelligent and well advanced in civilization. Although of the Indian race, they had nothing in common with their red brethren of the north and their habits and manners. 
Their religion was based on incongruous and exaggerated mythology, which, through the influence of superstition and the machinations of a perniciously insinuating priesthood, resulted in idol worship and the terribly vitiating practice of human sacrifice. They believed in a supreme being whom they supplicated, but in an indirect way. They were unable to conceive of a personal unity so comprehensive in attributes of perfection as is the great creator and savior of man and, therefore, supplicated through inferior ministers, presiding deities, represented in great images set up in their Teocalis, temples. They had a system of education which embraced a traditional history, astronomy, mechanics, arithmetic, and a means of communicating ideas by written signs, designated hieroglyphical painting, which was imparted to the youth through the medium of a public school under the management of the priesthood. Their domestic habits and the rules regulating intercourse between the sexes were most advantageous for the women. They, unlike their red sisters of the North and, we might add, some of the wider ones of Europe were required to do no labor that was counted the man's, but were left strictly to the performance of their domestic duties. They were treated with the greatest consideration, especially by their husbands, and, when sought after in marriage, were courted in a manner truly chivalrous. Of their young women we quote from a well-known and authentic writer, the Aztec maiden was treated by her parents with a tenderness from which all reserve was banished. They conjured her to preserve simplicity in her manners and conversation, uniform neatness in her attire, with strict attention to personal cleanliness. They inculcated modesty as the great ornament of a woman and implicit reverence for her husband a duty. When circumstances would allow of it, the women beguiled the time in the lighter work of adornment, or, not infrequently, passed it in quiet indolence. It is said of them that they were quite pretty, not at all like what may be seen today in their miserable descendants. Their long and profuse black hair was usually confined by a web of some kind, or adorned with wreaths of flowers, or strings of glittering beads formed from the precious metals and the richer gems of stone and pearl. A scarf was sometimes worn upon the head, the fashion or design of which we will not attempt to describe. There is scarcely anything said by writers of their dress. We may infer, however, that it was worn with a view to convenience, neatness, and show. The prevailing skirt, we dare say, was of a length which did not hamper the movement, but was, nevertheless, a work of art, as were the jackets and leggings which were worn by the higher classes, in which elaboration and richness of decoration were often indulged to a degree approaching gorgeousness. The sexes shared alike in occasions of festivity. They indulged in banqueting and other social gatherings, which were conducted with elegance and a remarkable degree of refinement. We quote briefly on this point, the halls were scented with perfumes and the courts strewed with odoriferous flowers, which were distributed in profusion among the guests as they arrived. Cotton napkins and ewers of water were placed before them as they took their seats at the board for the venerable ceremony of ablution before and after eating was punctiliously observed. 
Here is evidence of an elevated social condition and certainly would indicate the obtaining of a high regard for forms in which love of the beautiful is shown and a commendable decency inculcated. They smoked tobacco and indulged in intoxicants, marks of civilization, but to become drunken was a disgrace which was punishable in the young. The governments were in some instances republican in the manner of operating them, though subject to the rule of a prince whose position and rights were inherited and who was surrounded by a class of persons dignified as nobles. However, the disposition of the king had much to do with restricting or extending the privileges of his subjects, which occasionally resulted in despotism, as in the case of the Tepanics. The people were encouraged to become producers, especially in the matter of agriculture. This branch of industry was closely studied and, considering the disadvantages labored under by the farmer in the absence of draft animals, was very successfully conducted. They appeared to understand the management of the ground, the dryness of which was relieved by irrigation. The principal products of the farm were maize, cacao, chocolate, and a variety of garden vegetables, the food supply, while cotton and maguey furnished the material from which various kinds of cloth and paper were produced, and we are told the land teemed with an abundance thereof. Slavery existed in various phases, the conditions being fixed according to the circumstances governing the case. Much of the labor was, of course, done by this class of persons. The forests were carefully preserved and heavy penalties imposed to prevent their destruction. The men were not permitted to pass their time in idleness, but were furnished employment by the government in the promotion of public improvements, such as the building of great aqueducts and highways and expansive public edifices, palaces and temples, an example of public economy worthy of imitation by the more enlightened people of the world. Polygamy was practiced according to the means and inclination of the individual. It was mostly confined to the nobility, however. With all their severity, the laws protected a man completely in his personal rights, not only as a proprietor and master, but as a slave. The marriage relation was regarded with the greatest reverence and adhered to with fidelity. The sovereign was especially protected in his marital affairs, death being visited upon the man who in the least degree usurped his place in the affections of a wife or one chosen to be a wife, and the woman concerned, we infer, was not held guiltless, but on the other hand was counted particeps criminis. With these few references and the information with which the narrative abounds, the reader, we feel, will be enabled to proceed intelligently and with satisfaction in its perusal. A Prince of Anahuac Chapter 1 In a private and secluded apartment of his ancestral palace Zatwalkoyal, the then reduced Prince of Tezcuco, deeply engrossed in the mysteries of some hieroglyphical manuscript lying on a table before him. While thus engaged, his personal servant, Oza, appeared at the door of his apartment and paused in an attitude of waiting. The prince, happening to look up, saw him and said, What is your errand, Oza? If it will please my master, it Salma would have speech with him, replied he. 
bid it Salmo come, and, Oza, stay without, I may want you. In the early part of the 15th century, and about 100 years prior to the conquest of Mexico by Cortes, the Anahuac was just entering on its golden era. It bloomed then, as it never has since, with an almost endless variety of tropical vegetation, and under the skillful hand of its inhabitants was made to appear like a vast park or garden. Its cities were marvelous in the peculiarity of their construction. On its lakes were beautiful floating gardens, in park villas, charming landscapes within a landscape, dotted it over, and groves of magnificent forest trees, the oak, cypress, and other timbers, which raised their imposing heights toward heaven, stood sentinel, as it were, over the beautiful valleys and lakes below. Of the many tribes of people then occupying the Anahuac, the Tezcucans, Tepanecs, Mexicans, Aztecs, and Tlacopans were among the larger and most prominent. Our narrative has to do with all these, but more particularly with the first named, who were the descendants of the Akayuans, whose advent to the Anahuac took place near the close of the 12th century, and nearly simultaneously with that of the Mexicans and Shikamecs, the latter, possibly, the race from which sprang the Tepanecs and others of the more savage tribes. The Akayuans were a mild and peaceably disposed people, and intelligently superior. Their descendants, the Tezcucans, so called from the name of their chief city, inherited their admirable characteristics, and sustained their superiority for intelligence. The laws which governed the Tezcucans, as a nation, were, comparatively speaking, just and equitable, having in them little of an oppressive nature, which cannot be said of some of the other tribes. A few years previous to the time at which our story opens they were happy and prosperous people, and were ruled by a king who had a kind and generous disposition, and who always held the welfare of his subjects of first importance, for which he was greatly beloved by them. Their seat of government was Tezcuco, a populous city at that time, situated on the eastern border of Lake Tezcuco, nearly northeast, across the lake, from Tenochtitlan, the Mexican capital. The city of Tezcuco, if not at that time the most royal capital on the lake, was perhaps the oldest and largest, and noted especially for its intelligence and order. Besides its teachers and scholars, it had its artisans, the latter hardly less skilled than with those of the proud city of Azcapotzalco, a rival and the capital of its greatest enemy and despoiler. Its buildings were substantial, its palace commodious, its temples commensurate with the demands of their votaries, while its tanguis, marketplace, was broad and ample. About the year 1418, the king of the Tepanecs found cause for declaring war on the Tezcucans, and a bitterly contested struggle ensued, which terminated in the overthrow of the government and subjugation of the people of the latter, and the massacre of their good king, together with many of his nobles. Among those who escaped the death-dealing hand of the victors was the king's son, the young prince Walkoyev, heir to the Tezcucan crown. He was present at the bloody and disastrous ending of the strife, but, being concealed among the branches of a sheltering tree, from which position he witnessed the cruel murder of his father, he was not discovered by the foe. 
He was captured later, however, and thrown into a dungeon in his own city, where, though closely guarded, he remained only a short time, his friends effecting his escape by the substitution of another person who willingly gave his life in his young master's stead. He fled to the city of Tenochtitlan, where he found refuge with friends. After a time he was permitted, through the influence of the Mexican king, who was friendly toward his people, to return to Tezcuco and his ancestral palace on condition that he would live a retired and secluded life. He was there taken charge of and instructed by an old tutor named Itzalmo, who had been his preceptor previous to the overthrow of his country and death of his father. Walcoyl was about 16 years old when he went into retirement. He was unusually bright and gave promise in his deportment and youthful precociousness of reaching a splendid manhood. Eight years passed by, during which period he remained in undisturbed seclusion, acquiring knowledge and wisdom under the skillful training of the good Itzalmo and finding, in his hours of leisure, divertisement in the society of a few chosen companions. He had not disappointed the expectations of his friends but, at the age of 24, had ripened into a man of surpassing physical and intellectual force, a worthy representative of a noble line of princes. His adherents recognized in him their future king, their hope of deliverance from Tepanek usurpation. About this time, 1426, the even tenor of the prince's life was interrupted by the sudden and unexpected death of the destroyer of Tezcican independence, the old king, Tezizomok, and Azcapazalco, the Tepanek capital. The government of this nation and its subjugated provinces would now devolve upon Prince Maxla, the deceased king's son, who was looked upon as a very unscrupulous and dangerous man, more so, if possible, than was his father, whose rule had always been despotic and tyrannical, especially over his foreign vassals but to return to the prince's apartment. The servant retired with his master's message and Itzalmo came soon after. Advancing before Wakuev, the old vassal dropped on one knee in salutation. Arise, Itzalmo, said the prince, kindly. You have requested speech with me. Wakuev is pleased to grant any favor you may ask which is his to bestow. Of what would you speak? Wakuev, the prince, is very kind. If it please him, his servant would speak of the king. What of the king, good friend? The king is dead. The king dead, you say? How came the news? By special courier, but now? Wakuev's countenance took on a grave and thoughtful expression. After a short pause, he remarked, Maxla will be king. Yes, Maxla is already king, replied Salmo, crowned by his father's hand, an event greatly to be deplored, surely, and one might we ask, O prince, what will be the issue? An inauspicious succession, good friend, to say the least, and one full of painful uncertainty, spoke the master, and, after a brief silence, he suddenly said, Itzalmo, thou hast excellent command of thy knowledge, thou art wise, 
I would know what is in thy mind. What discernest thou in the old king's death? How will it affect our people's condition? Wakoyev is the son of a noble father and, like he was wont to do, gives his first thoughts to his people. Be assured, O prince, that no good, but evil only, will come to Tezcuco from Maxla. He is an unscrupulous prince and hath not the fear of the gods in his heart. The oppressor's hand has been very heavy, the weight of it will not grow lighter, the shackles which bind us are galling, they will not be loosed. The old man's voice grew sadly eloquent. Raising his eyes and looking off as if in contemplation of his enthralled and unhappy country, he exclaimed, Tezcuco, O Tezcuco, thou art indeed distressed, and the end is not. Et Salmo, good friend, it is not a cheerful picture you hold up before me in this perplexing hour, and I fear greatly that you have not overdrawn. What would you advise? For eight years you have been like a father to Wakoyev, yes, for eight years your hand has pointed out the way, and it has been Wakoyev's pleasure to walk therein. Speak, Itzalmo, good friend, I repeat, what would you advise? It is a troublesome question you would have me answer. Time has not been given me in which to consider. At best, we can only wait and watch. A few days may enlighten us much in regard to Maxless disposition and purpose, especially with reference to yourself. Our friends at the king's palace will be sleeplessly vigilant, his every movement will be closely watched, and, if of a menacing character, reported immediately. You speak truly, Salmo, when you say we can only wait and watch. Our hands are indeed helpless. But do not let us anticipate troubles, they come fast enough. Have done with that, then, and look at this, returned the prince, calling the old preceptor's attention to the manuscript on the table, which proved to be the work of his own hand, and of which he desired a critical inspection by Itzelmo. After a close scrutiny of the manuscript, the old tutor said, showing his gratification and approval. Wakoyev has done well. The pupil has become a master, and Itzelmo's labors, as his instructor, are about at an end. The builder has not built it in vain, and his heart rejoices that it is so. Wakoyev has been fortunate in the matter of an instructor, if in nothing else. Itzalmo has been a faithful teacher, and his reward shall be commensurate, the gods befriending us, replied the prince in grateful tones. May the gods befriend you, good master, not for my sake, but for your own and that of your oppressed people, perfectly responded the old tutor. Your words are overkind, Itzalmo, good friend, and they will be remembered with gratitude, returned the prince, feelingly. Having accomplished the object of his visit to the apartment of Wakoyev, Itzalmo saluted him and withdrew. When left to himself, the prince became thoughtful for a time when he was suddenly reminded that his servant was without, waiting for orders. He struck, lightly, a small, bell-shaped instrument suspended near him and Oza immediately appeared in the doorway. Oza, 
spoke the master, asked that Sinuet to favor me with his presence. Sinuet, or Uetsen, was the son of a once prominent Tezcucan noble, Yuzumosin, who was a close friend of the late king of Tezcuco, and a high official in his court, and who shared, with many others, the fate of his royal master on the sanguinary field, where the best blood of a nation was shed to satisfy the instinctive cruelty of a barbarian tyrant. When the young prince Wakoyev went into retirement it was thought necessary that he should have a companion about his own age who would be to him an attendant and associate whose duty it would be to relieve, by his presence, the monotony of his seclusion. From the close official relation of the fathers and the intimacy of the families grew a warm and lasting friendship between the boys, and, as a result, Wakoyev's choice of a companion fell upon Sinuet. The young Tsin was a student and, under the direction of Itzalmo and the favor of the prince, had spent the years in perfecting his education. A genuine affection had gradually come between the young men and they were more like brothers than else. They were physically unlike, Uetsin being of medium height, yet of no inferior mold, with a light cast of complexion, while the prince was tall, muscular, and dark. In age there was about a year's difference, while Quail being the senior. They were fine specimens of their race. Oza delivered his master's message to the Tsin, who promptly responded. The young lord never forgot that his friend was also his prince, and always saluted him profoundly when they met, which he did on entering his apartment. Thanks, noble Tsin, for your promptness in coming to my relief. I am wearied of my work and would have exercise. Will you go with me to the court? Kindly spoke the prince. With gladness, O oh prince. You ought to know by now that your slightest wish is a law unto your friends, especially to myself, in whom obedience to you is the fullness of pleasure, born of affection, answered Uetsen, his countenance beaming with an expression which emphasized his words. Uetsen, I believe you, for without affection a friendship so true as yours could not exist. But come, let us to the court. The ancestral palace of the Tezcucan princes at this period was not to be compared with what it was later, it was, presumably, an expansive structure, if not massive, built on three sides of a court, the court terminating at the rear of it in a beautifully arranged garden. In the front, or main portion, of the palace were the audience hall and council chamber, also various other apartments, among them those intended for the private use of the king and his numerous household, many of which, after the subversion of the government and death of the king, fell into disuse by the dispersion of the occupants. In one of the back wings which extended along the side of the court were the culinary establishment, banqueting hall, and, communicating with the latter, saloons or reception rooms. There were other apartments connected with this wing for the accommodation of servants, the ordinary vassals of the king, of whom there were a very great number in his time, but which were now reduced to the actual necessities of the prince and his companions. In the other wing of the palace was an extensive conservatory, where were cultivated the choicest flowers and shrubs to be found in the valley, of which there was no lack.
The Anawakans took great delight in floral displays, and no home was complete without its flowers. When the prince and his companion reached the court, they found some of their attendants playing at ball. This was one of Wakoil's favorite means of obtaining exercise and relief from the depressing effects of his enforced seclusion, and they immediately joined in the game. After indulging in the sport to their satisfaction, the prince requested Uetsen to withdraw with him to the rear of the court, where they found a pleasant retreat and protection from the sun's heat in an inviting arbor, which was especially arranged for their comfort and enjoyment in leisure hours. When they were at ease, the prince said, Are you aware, Sinuet, that the king is dead? Yes, prince. Itzalmo informed me soon after receiving the message. Itzalmo is of opinion that the coming of Maxla to the throne will, if anything, add to the distress of our people. I have great regard for his sagacity, yet withal, being deeply concerned personally, I would have your opinion also, Sinuet, and have brought you here to obtain it. You may be able to throw some light on the matter, and, by so doing, change the present aspect of it. Maxla is king, and, as we have reason to believe, a king without scruples, and not to be relied on. Were Tezcuco in position to demand the restoration of her rights as a nation we would know how to proceed, but she is not, and we are left with only one alternative, that of submission. Thus unhappily environed, our only recourse is to seek to mollify the king. How to do this, friend Uet, is the present and very important question. Wakuil paused and looked inquiringly at the sin. Yourself, O oh Prince, will be the one most affected by the change of rulers, and three, the new king must be mollified if such a thing be possible. I fear very much that any overtures in that direction will be met by a scornful rejection, especially with reference to your own case, was Uetsen's rather discouraging reply. On what grounds, Sinuet, do you rest your fears? On the character of the man who now becomes the wrongful ruler of our people. His exceedingly bad record as a young man, a record full of meanness, largely made up of diabolism and cruelty, evidence of which is not lacking, furnishes sufficient grounds for fear and apprehension. I will venture an assertion, O Prince, which may seem overstrong to you, yet I feel confident I do not err in my conclusions. It does not require a prophet to foretell a thing when the conditions portend it. You, O Wakuev, the rightful Prince of Tezcuco, and Maxla, the king, cannot both continue to live under the same government. Mark me well. Sooner or later you will be compelled to fly or suffer death. It was with a pale, stern face that Sin uttered his concluding words. The prince looked at him in amazement, considering the enormity implied in the prediction, yet, when he spoke, it was with perfect calmness. You undoubtedly believe what you say, my dear Tsin, yet I am slow to think myself so obnoxious to the king as your words imply. You are obnoxious to him, noble prince, to the extent of being feared. 
He is a jealous and suspicious man in addition to his many other faults and will brook no possible rival to his authority over Tezcuco. While Wakoyev, the beloved prince of an enslaved people, lives and is, in a measure, at liberty, Maxla will not rest in security. Believe, O noblest of friends, I beg you, that I would not unduly excite you in this matter, but being deeply impressed with the thought that your life is in jeopardy, I am impelled to raise my voice in mourning. After a moment's pause, the prince said, Sinuet, I must know to a certainty if your apprehensions of peril to myself are correct. Have you any plan to offer? You seem to have given the matter thought. What would you do? inquired Walkoyev, showing unusual concern. I would go to Azkapazalko and into the king's presence at once and offer him allegiance. If he contemplates harm to you, he will show it. He will not dare to molest you openly and without cause. Your return may be fraught with danger, yet it is worth the hazard to learn his mind, replied the sin. The past has taught me, Uetzin, that your opinions are usually well grounded. The character established by Prince Maxla in the past, as you say, is sufficient cause for apprehension. Your words have stirred me deeply, and I think I will act upon them, though, before doing so, I must have time for thought. Say nothing to anyone of what is in your mind respecting this matter, not even to Itzalmo, he would only oppose my going before the king, returned the prince, and continuing, he said, I pray your judgment may be in error this once, though, looking at it as you do, I fear the worst. The young man, feeling somewhat dejected, very soon left the arbor and returned, each to his own apartment. Chapter 2 Lake Tezcuco, the principal one of several situated in the Great Valley of Mexico, for in three-quarter centuries ago, when the present Mexican capital, then Tenochtitlan, stood a league or more within its borders, was quite an inland body of water, covering well onto 400 square miles of surface. Since that time this lake has shrunk into a remarkable degree, leaving the Great Valley City and the sites of others now reduced to insignificance miles away from it. At the time to which our narrative refers nearly all the chief cities of Anahuac were situated on its shores, among which was the Tepanec capital, Azcapazalco, located near the northwest corner of the lake. To this city we now have occasion to turn briefly. Azcapazalco was designated as the royal city, which, if it signified anything, meant that in the time of its ascendancy it was the most magnificent seat of government on the lake, if not on the Anahuac. It was a city of walls, we are told, and must have boasted of elegant structures of stone and sun-dried brick, which suggests the idea of towering temples, a grand palace and court, and extensive avenues where swarmed an aggressive and busy population. Its artificers, it is said, were superior in skill to those of any other city on the Great Plateau, which meant much, when we consider that among these were to be found jewelers who could unify metals so perfectly as to represent objects harmoniously variegated by alternately intermixing of silver and gold. Of their weavers we may speak equally well.
the ancient Mexicans were the first people to use the cochineal for purposes of coloring, which, after the conquest, was introduced into Europe by the Spaniards. Their weavers were enabled with it to make the products of the loom not only brilliant but beautiful. The fineness of their fabrics varied in texture as well as in dye, the most finished being made of cotton, one of their principal products, with which was interwoven the finest animal hair, forming a web fit to be worn by a king. A royal city, we may well believe, was Azcapotzalco, when Maxla, the tyrant rival of Prince Walcoyev, became the arbiter of its destiny. Maxla was seated on his throne in the audience hall of his palace, surrounded by his chiefs and advisors, nobles of his realm, holding conference with them regarding the duties of their respective positions and arranging other matters pertaining to his new and exalted station. The king was a man of medium stature, with a well-rounded physique, swarthy complexion, and very coarse features. His eyes were small and black and lighted up with a gleam of cunning and ferocity which gave to his countenance a decidedly disagreeable expression and one that boded no good to those whom he might deem his enemies. The costume he wore consisted of a loose-fitting tunic and leggings made to fit his limbs closely to below the calf, the whole wrought from the finest cotton fabrics and ornamented with trimmings of gold. Over his shoulders was carelessly worn a rich mantle of featherwork. His feet were encased in sandals made from the skin of some wild animal, while on his head rested a crown formed of precious metals and ornamented with gems and a pinnock of richly colored feathers. His chiefs were similarly dressed, accepting the crown, but in a less gaudy manner. A pause had fallen on the assembly, which was interrupted by the entrance of a herald who announced Prince Walcoyev as desiring audience with the king. The mention of the prince's name caused no little commotion among the king's attendants. A cloud of disapproval came over Maxla's face, and the evil expression upon it was intensified. After a moment's hesitation, he directed that the prince be admitted. On entering the hall, Walcoyev advanced before the king and saluted him in the accustomed manner, kneeling on one knee, placing his right hand on the ground and then to his forehead. While in this position he laid at the scowling Maxless feet an offering of flowers, which was emblematic of his peaceful intentions. The king gave a momentary glance at the prostrate prince, and then, with malice and hatred depicted on his countenance, silently and haughtily turned his back upon him. This action on the part of Maxla was highly significant. It was intended as a humiliation to the prince and signified that his offering was rejected, also that no favor might be expected by him from the throne. While Quiv rose to his feet deeply moved by the conduct of the king and, after a moment's hesitation, quietly walked out of the hall. As he left the door, he was accosted by one of the king's attendants who begged him to withdraw from the palace and city and return to his own as quickly as possible, for his life was in great danger. He was soon on the road to Tezcuco, where he arrived safely, but much perturbed in spirit and perplexed in mind. He went immediately to his private apartment and summoned Uetzin into his presence. In a very short time that sin appeared, and, 
after saluting him, said, I am here in answer to your summons, noble prince, and would know your pleasure. Be at ease, good friend, returned Wakuith, gravely, motioning the Tsin to a seat. A brief silence followed, which was broken by the prince. You Edson, he began, fixing his passionate eyes on his friend, the wisdom and penetration of an older head than might be expected has been given to you, as my appearance before the king has proven. You have seen the king, inquiringly interrupted the sin. I have, answered the prince, reflectively, looking beyond. Another short pause intervened, and recovering himself he continued, adopting a manner of expression peculiar to his race. The lion is loosed, and the fire of anger is in his heart. The fox must be wary, or his cunning may not save him. Do you interpret in these words the nature of my reception by the king? I do, and know that I read him truly. You did, most truly. In accordance with your opinion and advice, I went before the king, and in the presence of his assembled chiefs tendered my fealty and peace offering to his majesty with the accustomed formalities. My offerings were rejected, and I, the prince of Tezcuco, was spurned by him in the most humiliating manner, and compelled like a coward to slink from his presence under the infliction of the indignity, without the power to resent it. You Edson, something must be done, and quickly, for Max evidently contemplates harm to myself, his supposed rival, and will stop at nothing short of my destruction. It must be victory for Tezcuco or death for a prince, as it now appears. You Edson felt that a reply was expected and said, Walquith, the son of our lamented king, can rely upon his friends in any emergency. They are devoted to their country and prince, and only await an opportunity to avenge the wrongs which have been laid upon them. Your words, Tsinuet, are encouraging, for they strengthen an impression which I have hopefully entertained, that our people are still imbued with patriotism and love for their country, and may be led by incitement to do battle for its redemption. If our hope is not a vain one, which can only be ascertained by investigation, someone whose soul is in our cause must go abroad to inspire, arouse, and prepare them for revolt. By my peculiar position, I am unfortunately placed. I cannot go to those with whom I would counsel, neither can they come to me, for my every movement will henceforth be under strict and secret surveillance. On you, therefore, my trusted friend, must fall the work which I would, but cannot, do, the work of stimulating our people to action and organizing them into an army of resistance to the Tepanek despot, Maxla. I need not inquire if you will do it, Uetzin is the son of Uzelmosin that alone bespeaks his compliance. My life, O Prince, is at your disposal. You have but to command and I will obey. Spoken like the true Tezcucan that you are, noble Uet. That Wakoyat has not many more such loyal friends in his misfortune. The hour of need may discover to Wakoyat an army of friends not less worthy of trust than Uet, replied that sin modestly. Friends worthy and true, 
possibly never but one yet, returned the prince with a look which voiced the affectionate esteem in which he held his companion. That Sin was considerably affected by the prince's fervent manner and language and appeared confused for want of a suitable reply which the latter observed and, quickly continuing, reverted to the main question under consideration. The mission on which you are about to go is a very dangerous one, said he. Should you be discovered, death would undoubtedly be the consequence. I am aware of that, O oh Prince, yet I beg you will have no fears for my safety. I will choose my own companions, and, be assured, they will not be of the emissaries of Maxla. I believe you, and now, since you are to go, let there be no delay. Seek our friends and counsel with them. Learn the true feelings of our people and, if possible, the number of our adherents available for soldiers. Also, if so desirable an end may be attained, secure the cooperation of other states which are friendly to us. Work with the wisdom and judgment of which I know you to be possessed, and according to the success of your labors shall be your reward. May our nation rise under your hand from the ashes of her former greatness is our most earnest prayer. Go as soon as you can arrange to do so, and may the gods of our fathers be with you and keep you. You will see your excellent mother and sister, bear to them, I pray you, my profound respect, and say that I would come to them could I do so with safety. You Edson at leaving would have saluted the prince in the accustomed manner, but was stopped by him and, instead, was received upon his breast in a strong embrace, which signified that he was, for the time at least, accepted as an equal in all respects. Realizing the very grave circumstances under which they were parting, the friends separated with feelings of deepest sadness. The prince's confidence in the loyalty and integrity of his friend was full and complete, as we have seen, and the sequel proved that it was wisely placed. When the Tsin had withdrawn from the prince's apartment, the latter fell into deep meditation, as was his wont in the recent past. His thoughts at length appeared to turn on his aged preceptor, for he spoke audibly, as if addressing someone. Yes, the good at Salmo must not be overlooked in this matter. He has been like a father to me, and should share fully in my confidence. His wisdom and sagacity may yet be of invaluable service to me, as they have been in the past. He arose and straightway sought the old servitor in his private apartment, where he found him poring over his hieroglyphics. Salutations were exchanged, and the prince proceeded to relate the particulars of his visit to the palace of Maxla, also to express his fears as to the consequences liable to ensue and his determination to meet them by a speed preparation for resistance. Yet Salmo was not pleased that the prince had gone before the king unknown to him, yet his solicitude was instantly aroused in his behalf, and a careful study of the situation followed. The old preceptor was a man of marked shrewdness and cunning, and more than a match for Maxla if open violence was not resorted to. Friends, known to no one but himself, were to be found in the king's palace who quickly notified him when anything of importance occurred in his majesty's household or court. 
In this manner he was kept informed and always forewarned. Acquainted, as the old Tuskegee was, with the treacherous disposition of the Tappanecks and Maxla in particular, he felt that the strictest watchfulness would be necessary to avoid surprise. He had saved the prince from the wrath of the old king and hoped he might be able to save him again should the emergency arise. He therefore begged him to be discreet and trust to him. You are young, old prince, and with little experience to guide you, he said. I pray you, be not incautious, but let your actions be governed by wisdom and understanding. Do not forget, O Wakoyip, that the destiny of a people rests with you. Listen to him who has counseled and shown you the way in the past. Etzalmo is your proven friend, he will do for you what no other can. The old man's earnestness was remarkable, and the prince felt it. He said, Etzalmo, I know that I may trust you wholly, for have you not, indeed, proven it in many ways? Be assured, then, my ever-faithful friend, that your counsel shall not be ignored. I will be guarded in what I do. You have my promise. As he concluded, the prince passed from the apartment of the loyal old vassal, the latter sending after him a prayerful benediction.